0: Welcome back to another podcast episode of The Bruss Bookshelf. We're here with part three of the four-part series on the autobiography of Malcolm X as told to Alex Haley. We're joined here with me, your host, Lyndon Givens, my co-host, Dr. Harvey Hinton III, my line brother, Donovan Snipe. And we have rejoining with us for this part three that's going to carry us And closes out into part four is Dr. Richard Benson II. He's a historian specializing in education, the Black Freedom Movement, and the Transnational Social Movement. He's also an award winning author of Fighting for Your Place in the Sun, Malcolm X, and the Radicalization of Black Student Movement, 1960 through 1973. So this brother has a wealth of knowledge on the subject of Malcolm X. I hope you enjoy.
1: it.
2: you tuned in to the Brothers Book Chef podcast, where we read the books, and let the content drive the discussion. Listener discretion is advised. Enjoy.
3: Not the black man's laws. Well, the, the laws here in America were made white, by white people for the benefit of white people. The Constitution was written by whites for the benefit of whites. It was never written for the benefit of blacks. And and when you read the Constitution, I think in Article 1, se- section, Article 1 section 2, or Section 1, Article 1, some one of the two, and it's in the Constitution, it says that uh, it classifies black people as three-fifths of a man. Three-fifths of a man, subhuman, less than a human being. It relegates us to the level of cattle, hogs, chickens, cows, a commodity that could be bought and sold at the will of the master. No, it was written by whites for the benefit of whites and to the detriment of blacks. And when a black man stands up talking about his constitutional rights, he's out of his mind.
2: (laughs) That's that mouth going to get your ass in trouble, dog.
4: (laughs) That clip is from, um, Berkeley, October 10th, 1962 with Herman Blake. Yeah. Wow.
0: That's exactly what that
4: was. <laughs> mm-hmm. that, that That's not going to get you in trouble. 1962. Yep. He's on fire. Yeah, he was in Berkeley when he did that. That was a young brother who, at the time, was a grad student. I'm blocking on it, but it was a white guy on the panel as well. I'm blocking on his name, but he was a, it was a co interview. It's about an hour long. But yeah. He was on fire. hmm.
0: I think that that was one of the allures of Malcolm X that drew people in. It wasn't what he was saying because there were other people saying the same thing that what he was saying at his time. It was how he was saying it and how he was able to gain the people's ear and attract the people to what he was saying. As with hip-hop, you have the cadence, you have the voice, you have the talent, and Malcolm was had the charisma, mm-hmm. he had it all. He was just the natural speaker.
4: Lennon, I would, I, would, I would also argue, well, not argue, I would posit, I would posit that what he was talking about is many of his peers and those persons who were affected by him deeply and called themselves his, um, his friends or comrades, most of them said that he said what we were thinking because most persons were not saying what it is that he was saying. And not only did he say what we were thinking above and beyond what it is that the counterpositions were providing in terms of kind of like this grand narrative of, of kind of like general humanity of brotherhood, but Malcolm was critical and he was saying it openly on the airwaves and he was saying, saying it unapologetically. So I would argue that most were not saying what it is that he was saying. And then you add all the stuff that you were mentioning with respect to the attributes of his presence. Um, yeah. I mean, you just have to look at his contemporaries and just say who was speaking like this, who was challenging what he would call the, the class Negroes because hey. um, he always identified themselves, you know, him himself as one of the mass Negroes or, you know, in a famous um house, House Negro, Field Negro speech. He said he's a Field Negro, um, and he spoke as such. So I would say what he was saying was above and beyond. Yeah. What was what was like the? Uh,
2: again, that was nineteen sixty two. Malcolm. We get we get a lot of different Malcolms mm-hmm. in the in the autobiography. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think um, like one of the Malcolms that really I enjoyed listening to was the Malcolm that was talking about Lindy Hoppin. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) I went and did a whole kind of YouTube search Mm -hmm. on Lindy Hoppin Mm. and I wanted to see what black Lindy Hoppin was looking like, Mm -hmm. what white Lindy Hoppin was looking like
4: Mm
2: -hmm. um, and what it's looking like today. And I kind of landed on the Chicago step, Rich. Man, I was I was thinking
4: of it as you were saying. Bro. I was thinking of it. I was like, man, that that right there, that's in the legacy of Lenny Hopping, brother. Straight up. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you know,
2: that, that Malcolm was a fun-loving Malcolm. I mean, you know, the brother was talking about loving the dance. I remember when he talked about first getting into Harlem and coming there on the train. I was thinking about, you know, when you and I kicked it in, 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 in the scene. Yeah,
4: come on. It was it was like the same type of feeling. Yeah. And, and look, it still is that feeling, I would argue. You know, first What time is it back. about Harlem? Because I think I told y'all, I'm in New York now. I've been here for two weeks. I'll be here for another two weeks. And in Brooklyn, on a street called Tonkin's, There are about four or five black women who own stores on this strip in Bed-Stuy. So these black women have called it Black Girl Liberated Blocks. So every Saturday and Sunday, they just have an open market. So for about a maybe good three to five blocks on Tompkins Street in Brooklyn, in Bed-Stuy, they just, I mean, they selling, they got clothes, they got jewelry. They just got the whole thing. And, And it's a straight vibe. And right now they're trying to get them moved off of the street because the residents have been complaining. Well, not all, but some. But to your point. Yeah, because, you know, my brownstone is right here. But yeah, but a block up the street, this strip of stores is literally on Front Street. It's not like folks are going to the mall. You know, what I'm saying having a drive out. To the cow farmer's market and get their stuff. It's like, no, nah, it's it's right here.
0: And you have a real close relationship with the owners because you live with them.
4: Right, because you live in right there with them. Yeah. Exactly. It's a exactly. it's
0: a sense of business and enterprise. Yeah. I so mean, imagine how Malcolm felt. I mean, when Malcolm, he was exposed
2: to that. Malcolm was able to find employment that supported his lifestyle mm-hmm. with very little effort. And like, be good at the employment like he mm-hmm. was he was a good server for lack of better words you know he was a good uh porter for lack of better words you know he 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 kind of knew how to you know he, he was a good shoe sign guy for lack of better word he knew what it took to make another person feel good um i mean he knew what the bottom the bottom dollar was getting to the bottom dollar mm-hmm. <laughs> and he yeah. had no problem you know, exercising some cool to get there.
4: Yeah, I mean, you know, and it's funny because to your point, Harv, um, I think in 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 every phase, like you were talking about, which Malcolm that you probably have been most interested in reading about, depending upon where you had in the autobiography, I think in every phase, you know, his charisma comes through. So that aspect of his personality is... I think is, is is very pronounced the charismatic Malcolm. You can see in each phase, um, he's charismatic in that formula that
2: Lenny's talking about that, that yeah. speaking. He's, he's yeah. he, even when he's on fire, yeah. there's still charisma with.
1: If the masters, if the master's house caught on fire, the house Negro would fight harder to put the blaze out than the master would. If the master got sick. The House Negro would say, What's the matter, boss? We think. We think.
4: And you know, and, and it's comedic too. Some some aspects of it are comedic. He's um, I mean Absolutely. But but both of y'all know one of his running buddies when he was washing dishes at um, Small's Paradise in Harlem was uh, Red Fox. Red Fox. So Malcolm <laughs> gave some of his earliest talks, whatever, and you know, Red Fox is like, he's like, Look, man, you spitting truth, but you're not going to really be able to grab these people unless you actually make some of them laugh at some point. So at that point, he began to actually adjust his lectures to infuse some comedic aspect in order to gain people's attention and also to keep their interest. So, like you know, when he
0: says things like, "The white man, your friend," the white
4: man, your friend
3: took your language away <laughs> from
4: you <laughs> during slavery.
3: The only language you know is his language. You know, your friend's language. So you call for the same God he calls for. When he's putting a rope around your neck, you call for God, he calls for God. <laughs> and, you, and you wonder why the one you call on never answers you. Right.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, wow. It's just subtle, dry humor, but it's hilarious. Yeah, because yeah, <laughs> a lot of us, like, a-
4: like, he said... Call the people in the audience a chump. He said, This is this keeps happening because you're a chump, you're a political chump. And I'm just like, Oh my god, this cat right
5: here! Yeah, he definitely had that call to personality thing working for him. And I think that's why oh, yeah. he was so influential because, like, to Lenny's point, it's like, Yeah, other people might have been kind of saying what he was saying, but who remembers them? Like, mm-hmm. were they really saying it to the right ears to get around Malcolm? Yeah. Was able because he was a hustler, right? He's a hustler, he's he had that charisma, for, like since he was a kid, like, and it it it's displayed in all aspects of his life. Whether he was in jail, whether he was on the street hustling, it's just like whatever he needed, whatever arena he was in, he was able to pull it out and use it to his advantage. And luckily for us, he was using it for black liberation, as opposed to you know black destruction.
4: And and and, and to that point, I think one thing I don't think Malcolm actually gets enough credit for is. His ability to be able to study people, so he was charismatic. But in addition to his ability to be able to read people, because he would actually speak about understanding different audiences when he would give lectures. Right. So He's one thing that would always ride, say so. is that he could read a ghetto audience, you know, in a heartbeat. He knew when things were were starting to liven up. He knew when things would potentially get rowdy. He knew when he was going potentially losing his audience when he was lecturing. So. He was very well in tune and well aware of the persons that he was speaking to. And he was well aware by city, Philadelphia Negroes, definitely different from those in Harlem in Chicago, Detroit, et cetera. So he was well aware of who he was speaking to and who he, and where he was speaking to these people at in order to be able to, like, literally capture their attention.
0: Martin Luther King gave that same I have a dream speech. Oh, Yes. Three or four times. Yes, Actually, he wasn't even delivering the I Have a Dream speech at the March on Washington. Yep. When he wasn't getting a response from the crowd that he was looking for, that's when Mahalia Jackson yelled out.
4: Tell him about the dream, Martin. Tell him about the dream.
0: Tell him about the dream, Martin. Right. He went into, I say to you today, my friend, so even though we... Face the difficulties of today and tomorrow. I still have a dream. It's a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day. Hey, what's funny is Malcolm talking about that shit. Live out the true Listening meaning of his dream.
2: Listening to Malcolm talk about Behold the farce on Washington. To be
5: self-evident. Yeah. Yes it was to coordinated and like it's like you said let me a show because like black people always love drama right like that's how we even get like and it's like egyptian- we spiritual and emotional people yeah like even like egyptian spirituality is, is called the drama in the, of the heavens like so black people been like in that type of deliveries like since forever like that's the only way you really gonna reach us it's like you kind of have to like bait us a little bit with some entertainment pull us in with your personality drop a couple of nug- nuggets nuggets make us laugh, bring us back, make us mad, bring us back, and then like, all right, at the end of this, you're going to be all right. And everybody's like, yes, we are. Yeah, I love him. It's, it's Yeah, I mean, but it's an art to it. Definitely. What,
2: what, it's what Malcolm, definitely art. What Malcolm is talking about when he says the farce, and this is difficult because I think our people, we're taught to love the March on Washington. We're taught to love that I have a dream speech, even though we only hear the second half of it and we don't hear that part about Mahala boosting them. Malcolm is saying that there was there was some angry black folks that wanted to show up on DC and, and, and really do a tap dance on, on them and let them know what was up. And those efforts are being co opted And does that even
5: matter anymore? Definitely. Cause I mean, our efforts get co-opted now. Like that hasn't ceased. It's just like, well, what are y'all mad about? Well, let's join y'all. Calm down a little bit. We'll do it this way. We'll get more publicity. And now it's a show. But like you don't really get to like the issue being solved. It's just more so like activism for um for fans, basically. Like
2: And it's that it's that space where you know he's very critical of the individuals who's taking part of it. Mm-hmm. And we have to ask ourselves, you know, these are people who we believe were genuine. These are people who we saw getting that thump.
5: They might have been genuine, but people get changed. People get turned around. People get caught up. They they still people. <laughs> they still people. Why do you think so many militant about the life? <laughs> black leaders get caught up with all of these white girls. They get caught up. They just get pulled into the vortex.
1: Theme click to put Kennedy in power join the march on Washington. It's just like when you got some coffee that's too black, which means it's too strong. What you do? You integrate it with cream. <laughs> You make it weak. If you pour too much cream in, you won't even know you ever had coffee. It used to be hot, it becomes cool. It used to be strong, it becomes weak. It used to wake you up, and now it'll put you to sleep. <laughs> this is what they do with the march on Washington. They joined it. They didn't integrate it, they infiltrated it. They joined it, became a part of it, took it over. And as they took it over, it lost its militancy. They ceased to be angry. They ceased to be hot. They ceased to be uncompromising. Why, it even ceased to be a march. It became a picnic, a circus. (laughs) Nothing but a circus with clowns and all. We had one right here in, in Detroit. I saw it it's
2: on not going to get you in trouble again. One the they clowns don't want to hear, bro. You better cut that off. It was a
1: takeover when James Baldwin came in that Paris They wouldn't let him talk because they couldn't make him go by the script because they know Baldwin's liable to say anything. They controlled it so tight they told those Negroes what time to hit town. What speech they could make and what speech they couldn't make, and then told them to get out of town by sundown.
2: So when you hear him talk like that years later, mm-hmm. that fire people try to just think he's just angry for no reason. It, that fire to me is been kindled. <laughs> it's, it's been prepped and it's ready. Mm-hmm. It's, it's burning where it's supposed to be right now. Mm-hmm. You know, but people don't like that fire, man. That's why I was, you know, I'm joking around saying cut it off because people don't want to hear that, man.
0: (laughs) James Baldwin, to me, was one of the most thoughtful, comprehensive leaders of that time. Yes, he was. He uh, demanded respect. He gained Malcolm X's respect, so much so that he was sought after by Mm -hmm. the Honorable Elijah Muhammad himself. He spoke about it in that book, in his book, The Fire Next Time. So when I say there were other people speaking like Malcolm X, Mm -hmm. uh, I was referring to people like James Baldwin. Mm -hmm. And James Baldwin, um, if you ever listen to him, man, he just have those words. Mm -hmm. Yeah, James Baldwin was the first person I uh, heard say, and it's been rephrased in so many ways, but he said to be a Negro in this country and to be relatively conscious mm-hmm. is to be in a state of rage almost all the time. <laughs> so, like I said, mm-hmm. James Baldwin was that dude. Bro, i
2: seen that, that interview where, where Malcolm and James Baldwin, and they going at it. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's, 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 they going at it. And then, you know, James Baldwin makes this comment about not wanting to be called a black man. He just wants to be called a man. Mm-hmm. And Malcolm's like, uh, you know, I question any man. I question any man like Jimmy Baldwin and the dust wouldn't be labeled as a black man because what kind of man wants to lay down his blackness just to be labeled a man? He just, he just kind of, I thought he was going to say something else. I thought he was going to mm-hmm. kind of jab him on his sexuality or something. And, um, but no, he didn't. Right. And, and Baldwin comes back. He's like, well, I just revealed brother Malcolm's his his, his naivety to his, the cause and mm-hmm. uh, how much he cares about his people but he seems to not understand that his orientation to theology is no more truer than the one he's trying to criticize. I mean, he just said it in such a way that just like chopped them down, man. Just like you know, I you think James Baldwin won that of, debate. Oh, James Baldwin just like won, stood up, dropped the mic, you know, turned around, James <laughs> Brown split, and and, and, and moved <laughs> out the room. You know what
0: I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> what you say,
5: Donovan? I said, and then what? And then, and then, mic drop. That's all he just, yeah.
4: <laughs> and it's funny because, like, in the moment, in the moment, it's like, yeah, he bested him, but eventually, he adopts what it is that Malcolm was trying to get him to see at that early stage during the debate.
2: Absolutely. So the
4: ball, that you see then is now forever changed moving forward based on the continuous deaths of all of his friends. Edvers, Malcolm, and King. Yeah. Piss so them off. He has to really reposition his thinking about what it actually means to be a black man in America.
0: Right. And that's something. Yeah. Can't run from it.
4: Cannot run from it.
0: You can't even be optimistic and and, and just say Let me just wrap around my uh these people and just love them because you can love them, but you would love them right to your grave.
2: I mean, I don't know what's wrong with that though, Lenny. I think that's what we was talking about on the other, you know, last time, mm-hmm. you know, I, I'm starting to, I was thinking about that and like, you know, what does it mean that a, a man's loyal? Like, I think, I think, you know, looking at Malcolm this time around at this stage in my life, I was disappointed because I didn't, I didn't, I just didn't, it it, 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 it was, it was for a moment kind of hard to believe that he believed certain things. Mm-hmm. But then when I went back into where I was, you know, when I'm 20 years old mm-hmm. in, you know, 1990, you know, 98,
4: mm-hmm. you know,
2: that era, and I'm listening to Malcolm, I'm hearing a Yakub story. Mm-hmm. I'm hearing Wu-Tang. Mm-hmm. I'm hearing, you know, X-Clan. You mm-hmm. know, it's all kind of in that space. So it's like, yeah, man, the white man, man. You know, it's easy to kind of mm-hmm. take it in then. Now I'm listening to it, and I'm like, man, like, <sighs> like, yeah, man, like, damn, Malcolm, like, <laughs> like, I, I, like, I would be really curious to see what he would be like if he was today. Like, would he be as as smooth as Obama, or would he be somewhere in the Jeremiah Wright space? Like, how would he be today if he was still if he was still kicking?
4: I think his thoughts on the um. I would say kind of like the general cosmology of of the NOI can be seen as early as 61, 62. You look at some of those interviews that he did in the late 50s, when asked about Yaku, um, he would have answers. He would be able to provide, you know, eloquent answers and everything else, or whatever. But when pressed, eventually, you know, he would have to figure out a way how to shift topic. So he wouldn't even defend Yaku after a certain point. Then you look at a Malcolm, who I would even argue by the time he gets to 62, 63, doesn't even necessarily mention it. And when brought up, by this point, he's beginning to give a more objective answer as it relates to Islam. He may still hit it with, a, you know, Mr. Muhammad teaches us dust and saw so or whatever, but you really can't find too much about him even mentioning Yaku post 61. Then after Mecca, not at all. It's out of not after a, Mecca. Not, not at all. They probably was at, at Mecca talking
2: about what Yahoo? Yeah, they was passing slips. They were doing all kind of shit. <laughs> they, he, he was completely off guard in Mecca. He just was completely yeah. taken aback by that experience.
5: That's like, um, Lenny. We can relate this Like when you find out something's a chapter tradition, and then you talk to somebody who's been in the chapter longer than anybody else. I'm like, what? When we start doing that?
0: <laughs> right, <laughs> and, 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 but we think we think it's a, it's been a staple forever.
5: Yeah, I mean, like, huh?
0: Yeah, but it'd be like an '80s, bro. You're like,
5: hold on, <laughs> the '90s, bro,
0: started this. They had a, they led us to believe that this is tradition. You just don't start something and say it's tradition. Yeah. I guess you can if you can. I mean, you nobody nobody wrong, nobody lying. Yeah.
2: It's just yeah.
0: different different coin different and size of the story. It's all you do it three
5: story. times a tradition. So I guess <laughs>
0: <laughs> but you know what that was one of the things that I found remarkable about uh Malcolm X was how strong he was in his convictions. Uh <laughs> and but and, but how he wasn't married to being right, he was more so married oh, to yeah. the
2: truth.
4: Yeah, right?
2: the pursuit of truth. If yeah, he, he was, yeah, to pursue the truth.
4: in teaching against women. So he had written a written a letter back to one of his cousins, and he was saying, you know, he wish he had more time. So this letter he had written later, 64, about 65, and he was just talking about how he had taught the brothers to spit acid at the sisters and that he would be critical of many of the women if they wanted their husbands to be at home, and he would say things like that they were taken away from the business, of business of the nation, and that of Mr. Muhammad. He said he wished he had time to go back and undo much of that bad teaching that he had done with respect to not supporting black women. Um, and he said that he was wrong.
6: In every country that you go to, uh, usually the degree of progress can never be separated uh, from the woman. If you're in a country that's progressive, the woman is progressive. If you're in a country that reflects a consciousness uh, toward the importance of education, it's because the woman is aware of the importance of education. But in every backward country, you'll find the women are backward. And in every country where education is not stressed, it's because the women don't have education. So one of the things I became thoroughly convinced of in my recent travels is the importance of giving freedom to the woman, giving her education, and giving her the incentive to get out there and put that same uh, spirit and understanding in the children. And I frankly am proud of the contribution that our women have made in the struggle for freedom. And I'm one person who's forgiving them all of the leeway possible because they've made a greater contribution than many of us men.
4: So in that sense, it's like, I think, I don't think that him having the ability to think, to, to think critically um, was 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 literally taking the backseat in any way, shape, or form to his ability to be highly invested in what he believed in. I Always feel like he was constantly rethinking about his positions. Plus, you know, you asked me. Well, you all asked me a question about how I felt about like my first time in New York. You know. We're literally getting off the m sixty and you know in Harvard we talked about kind of like our experiences we was in New York at the same time. you have to remember at this time well and it's really not too much different now, but Harlem is like like it's like the literal mecca of 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 all this diasporic black culture meeting together in this small ass space between hundred and tenth up until about a hundred and 54 from river to river. That's not a lot of space, but you got folk from all over the planet who are identifying as some aspect of Black on the spectrum who are here. And these people are street orators, they're intellects, you know, they're... they're the Renaissance, like,
0: the Harlem Renaissance. Right,
4: so these persons are challenging Malcolm. So these mm. persons are also challenging Malcolm on... Tell us more about the Jaco. Mm-hmm. So he ain't even necessarily got to get this from the white press. He has to defend this in spaces where folks.
2: Hey, what what did Gregory say to him? Elijah Muhammad said, "We Malcolm couldn't even say the word. What did he? (laughs) I'm assuming he called him a
4: pimp." Yeah, I mean, I I mean, I mean, you know, in in terms of dealing with that, I mean, Elijah Muhammad didn't have any. I mean, he didn't have any alignment with the with, with the continent of Africa. Queen Mother Moore taught that to Elijah Muhammad. but but taught it to Malcolm prior to that of having a deal with Elijah Muhammad. So it's like people are challenging Malcolm on so many different points because they want to align for, you know, this, this political program that he's unveiling while he's still with the Nation of Islam. But at the same time, they're also challenging him on these points like, yeah, I agree with all of this, whatever, but you don't have any historical basis to be able to provide evidence for y'all cool brother.
2: So check this out. I thought it was interesting, like how in the beginning of when he's telling his stories, he's using names and stuff, mm-hmm. but in the latter part, he's not using names. So he's not talking about who he's studying with. So, you know, I meet Dr. Clark, John Henry mm-hmm. Clark and Dr. Clark and um, talks about studying with Malcolm and mm-hmm. being Malcolm study guide. So, so, Rich, is that who he's talking about? Is is Malcolm? Are these the kind of people who you're talking about that's helping Malcolm get a real historical understanding? People like Dr. John Henry Clark, people like Dr. Ben like folks like that.
4: Yeah, two of many because remember Malcolm had a shadow cabinet, and it was men and women. So you had Vicky Garvin, you had Henry Clark, you had Ben Yochanan, you had um um. You had the brother that was in Detroit, uh, Shrine of the Black Madonna, I'm blocking on his name or whatever. But you have folks who are across the country because remember is the national spokesman. He's in and out of every major city from San Fran to New York, D.C., et cetera. So he's coming in contact with with the literal high level intelligentsia of black America in every major city that he travels to because of the gravitas. So he's speaking. Folks are showing up. Then he's like literally holding court in people's houses. So in Detroit, you know, you got James and Grace Lee Boggs. Then you got the contingency in Chicago coming out of the community, folks. You got folks in Philadelphia. So wherever he lands, you always have kind of like this old guard of black folks who were activists pre that of Malcolm, who would have been kind of the contemporaries of Elijah Muhammad, who are Garveyites. You know, these folks are CP folk. You know, these folks are African blood brotherhood folk or whatever. In all of these major cities, and they're providing Malcolm with a lot of tutelage and support as well, men and women. So wherever he goes, folks are constantly challenging him, and then also providing him with tutelage as well. So you get all of that going on. Then you're going back to the temple number seven to deliver your lessons, you know, to deliver a national address, whether it's in Chicago, whether McCormick Place, or you know, somewhere in New York, or whatever, and you're sprinkling all of these lectures and talks you know with this very eclectic influence of information that you're getting from not just new york well first of all not just the nation of islam but from all over new york then all over the tri-state then the breadth of the east coast then the breadth of the nation because remember at one point malcolm was leading temple he was leading the temple in new york dc and philly until they could actually provide you know fine persons to run the temples So he's all over the place and it's reflective in his talks. It's reflective, you know, it's reflective in what he's doing. I mean, the one speech that you played, where he's talking about who taught you to hate what it is that God gave you. I mean, he spent almost about a good five or six months in L.A. And he was L.A. at the time for that particular speech because he was learning how to put together a newspaper. But that was based on a police brutality piece that happened when they killed all them brothers in the temple. He was the, uh, he was the secretary of that temple out in Los Angeles. And the police, um, on some Gestapo tactic type stuff, broken, stuff or whatever, and just started shooting brothers. But um, but but all of that took place in LA, So, which is another temple that he was overseeing in terms of growing and building. So Malcolm's influences are, oh, and I forgot about this part. So you take New York. Which is there's no really no other city in the in the country you can compare to New York. It's an international city, so Harlem is what it is. Brooklyn, Brooklyn is what it is in terms of this this diaspora presence. And Malcolm is spending a lot of time at the United Nations. He was just going out to the United Nations and literally just sitting on sessions. So he's getting an international experience and also exposure just by living in New York alone. So you take a John Henry Clark because he would say that he would put folders of information together for Malcolm because you know we've heard Malcolm speak on many occasions, especially those older older talks. He would always couch it with something historical, then he would bring it to the present. Well, you know most of that or much of that is based on his reading, in addition to that influence from somebody like a John Henry Clark. But you know with Malcolm, um, I think his brother probably said it best. He said. He was so tuned into life that he was always somewhere where black folks were and if he wasn't there he was reading about it, he was listening to it because it was like he didn't want to miss any moment at all because he he felt that he needed to be wherever that we were and also be in the know about whatever that we were doing all over the planet.
5: Like I think at that time like Harvey said a lot of black folks were kind of just searching, right? Like cuz we're not We're not even really that far removed from slavery. So we've escaped the plantation. We've escaped bondage, right? Like our actual physical bondage. And now we're kind of free. So at this point, Black people are trying to get free and everywhere, even like mentally free and starting to kind of question everything about their reality that was given to them, including this white Jesus and all of these religions. So I think that's kind of how we got this. I don't want to say a powder keg, but like this explosion and just like different types of Black thought and the possibility of like, well, is this origin story we've been hearing in the Bible, the right one, or maybe there's yeah. some other stories. And that's kind of what led to like the, the creation of all these different sects, which for the most part had like a kind of like a positive effect on like the black psyche and like are moving us out of that space of kind of just being, um, what's the word I want to look at uh, spiritually enslaved. But, it kind of did lose the mark when, like you said, like if we're making this stuff up, then if you're making that part of it up, how can I be so secure in all this other black liberation stuff you're talking about if this other stuff you're saying is not historically correct? So I think that probably was like maybe like the major folly if it can be labeled as such. I mean, but I mean the nation is still around, it's still saving black men, black families. Um, the Morris Science Temple is still around doing the same thing. So like I guess at the end of the day do the, do the results are the results the only thing that matter I, one I, I think that. that he was torn between loyalty mm-hmm.
0: and his enlightenment
2: well well i think i think before before he's torn between that i think he um there's a point, and it's in this space where he's preparing to defend um the minister where he begins to separate morality from his conversation and he's start, he's starting to talk more about politics and social conditions and people's you know um humanity in the broader sense and so I think that, you know there was there was evidence that he was able to not be so zealous that like he was able to shift on some things and that he had always had capacity there to grow you know but um i think i think he he i i don't i think he i think he demonstrated that very early that he could Shift on his on his point of view when it came to the importance of religion, and 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 like I say, removing that that moral conversation, you know.
0: Um, I, 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 let me jump in right quick. We did see a part where everything went down and his loyalty went up. When he at one point, I felt in the book that he became a little desperate. And he became it became more of one of those things where Elijah Muhammad was like his dad, and it almost was like, "Hey, look, you messed up. I can find this. I found this in the Quran. This." Where he was acting as his attorney, like I can defend you. I love you. Don't uh, don't leave me. You know, my dad mm-hmm. left me. Mm-hmm. My mother left me, and it was like this feeling of. I don't know. Maybe I'm reaching. Help me out, dog. I don't no, know. I maybe you I know. It's this because... feeling of abandonment because he was abandoned as a child, and and the nation has grown to be his family. He mm-hmm. he he disassociated himself from his blood brother for this, and now yeah. you're about to kick me out.
5: Please don't kick me out. Mm-hmm. Okay, I know you fucked them hoes.
0: We can defend that.
5: But he he wouldn't even think along the lines of don't kick me out. He was like, let's do this thing so we can save your reputation because I know you're a good person and like I I have so much faith to believe
0: in you, right? I compromise my principle and and as hard as I've been on everybody else
5: for you. Yes.
4: Well, I I think well you're definitely right. And I think it's another another factor we have to consider in terms of the way Malcolm was actually approaching what. You know what? W- what was literally his defense of Elijah Muhammad is that all of this, and we can, and when I say all of this, I'm not even necessarily talking about kind of like the structure of the nation, but for Elijah Muhammad, Malcolm's like, in th- this this person, Malcolm's beliefs system is established in this individual. So for him, he's infallible. So to now find fault in this person who is literally as he would always repeatedly say he was lifting him out of the dead he has to now go back and reconsider and reconstruct what it is that the belief system is in addition to how it is that he literally has has pedestalized elijah muhammad because remember like what it is that you get and i'm going to use this as kind of like a generic example but i think most people who've seen spike lee's version or whatever for that one particular scene, but it wasn't just that scene. That happened on several occasions throughout Malcolm's career as he was in Harlem where folks say, are you Elijah's pimp?" Mm. So in that particular scene, it's like, okay, well, you're literally being, you know, the one who's doing the most marketing, mm. who's doing, you know, the most with respect of advertisement, the most with respect of of literally... Recruiting. Um, like recruitment, based the deification of Elijah Muhammad, to which you also have fallen victim. Um, And and then with that, now he's even willing to forego his own principal behavior as it relates to what he's been critical of others in terms of whether it's fornication, you know, whether it's marriage outside or, or I would say fornication, sex outside of marriage, et cetera. He's willing to forego all of this in order to make an exception for what the foundation of his belief system is, which is Elijah Muhammad. But I'll go back a little bit further because you you, you brought up the whole thing around, around exploitation. And we identified from where we from in terms of like, like you know, no, this is, this is pimping. I think people don't really understand something that I've been talking about for years in terms of really analyzing Malcolm and the evolution of, his own thought, his own ascendancy, and then that of the Nation of Islam in terms of the political economy of the Nation of Islam. So Malcolm enters a nation which, in, in which they are at a point in 1952 of approximately 400 people, and 400, from what I've been informed, is a generous number. So by the time they hit you know, the pinnacle of the, of the, of the membership of the Nation of Islam with temples all over the country, they're at about 40,000. And you can look at the autobiography from which the epilogue, and Malcolm mentions this on other occasions, he would say something slick like, well, you know, I don't know. Those who say don't know, those who know don't say. But he gave a number at about 40,000. So what does that mean? Now we're talking about a small storefront sect with maybe two temples in Detroit and maybe in Chicago, maybe in New York, but... But competing entities as well, because we all know that churches are driven off of membership, which in this case means tithing. So the Nation of Islam had a mandatory 18% tithing mandate for 18. each and every member. 18. In addition to, in addition to selling papers, in addition to in, in addition to the barbershops, in addition to the hair salons, in addition to the, the pharmacy stores, all things that were nation business, the members patronized for the purposes of being able to ensure that that dollar turned over 10 times at minimum before it will leave nation business or based business um, enterprises and before it will leave out into the greater community. So what does this mean by 61, 60, 61? the nation of Islam had become the richest black led organization in the country. And it was, it was, it was placed at a number of about 6 million. So what we have to do now was put 6 million in an inflation calculator to see what $6 million in terms of purchasing power was in 1960 versus that of 2022. So that said, the nation is growing. Malcolm is evolving. So, what you get out of a nation, out of the Nation of Islam, when Malcolm is getting out of prison, first getting there in 52, in the late 50s, et cetera, it looks a hell of a lot different in terms of what it is that they stand to lose by 6061 versus what they, what they stood to lose earlier. They can talk, as you would say, cash money shit about a whole bunch of stuff when they're first getting started because they don't have much to lose. By 6061, this has grown into an enterprise. That has coast to coast recognition <laughs> with a membership <laughs> base that's <laughs> continuing to explode. Say
2: Malcolm cannot jeopardize about. So Pick what you're
4: now is they would say you are, excuse Get my language, you are no, fucking, with, on the the bread.
0: The you fucking yeah.
4: with the money. You fucking with the, the money. Can't fuck with the money, What
0: are you,
5: you do do
4: doing? Right. Yeah, we're not gonna allow you to do I'm that. So it's a, it's a lot
5: to be said about oh, that. My uh, popping out of nowhere, just revealing themselves, Malcolm. I'm going to have to censor you because you, you... No, we're going to have to sit
4: you down because... And then the other thing is that you have to understand... This. Let me so stun like, you real quick. Like, 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 what are we talking about? What we're talking about essentially is those, not just Elijah Muhammad, but anybody who's in a capacity of either one or two spaces. Either you are leading a temple or you are a supreme captain or a captain over a mosque, which is, as, as we know a little bit about the nature of Islam, that is the head of the paramilitary sector, the fruit of Islam or whatever, or you are literally the one who's standing, preaching, delivering, when you lead the namaz as a head minister. I mean, you're getting paid to show up and preach. You're getting paid to show up and, 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 and facilitate the paramilitary. We're not talking about you having to work at UPS or you having to, you know, have hard manual labor, whatever you showing up in a suit, blue tie, whether it's bow or whether it's long, et cetera, in order to engage in people and fish and recruit throughout the day. And you're getting a salary to do this. Do you think we're going to allow you to now mess up what it is that we identify as a national cash cow that's continuing to grow because you're having, you're having a war of consciousness with what it is that you think that Elijah Muhammad should or should not be doing in terms of extramarital affairs, are you going to go along with the program? And if you're not, we would rather ostracize you or eliminate you than mess up the forthcoming bread that's going to be even larger than what it is now.
0: You just really established a motive. You really framed that. I I like the way you put that because I I was thinking something along the lines of a little different. Mm -hmm. You you really, I, I was thinking more of the still kind of going in the exploitation part and how it was very contradicting. I read the Manny Marble book, uh, Mm -hmm. Reinvention of Malcolm X. Mm -hmm. I'm going to have to be honest, y'all. I read that. I read that first. Right? Mm -hmm. And what Manny Marble did was he pulled a lot of documented FBI files. Mm -hmm. That's where he got a lot of his research. Mm -hmm. And it went into deep detail about the inner workings of the nation and what the FNOI was actually doing mm-hmm. in terms um, of the paper, actually Malcolm mm-hmm. started the paper. Yeah. Right. But in terms of uh, the paper, Muhammad speaks, mm-hmm. um, you had to sell X amount of papers. And, and if you
4: didn't, and you, you had points. to reach, reach a quota. And, and, and if, if you didn't, risk, yeah, you got beat. They beat your ass. Oh, and then the other thing is that they don't talk about is that you either... So if you did not meet your quota, you had to do one of two things. You were either physically reprimanded or you had to buy all the papers that you didn't sell. The, the, ah, okay. yeah, so, so, yeah, so... When
0: you start really... When you Back start really, when, when you start really breaking down the Hilly. inner workings it's of the... Shit. of the black Muslim organization... It was like a, it was ran like a street game almost.
4: There's, and no, there's no
3: almost. The only thing that I regret in all of this is that two black groups have to fight and kill each other off. Elijah Muhammad could stop the whole thing tomorrow just by raising his hand. Really, he could. He could stop the whole thing by raising his hand, but he won't. He doesn't love black people. He doesn't even love his own followers, proof of which they're killing each other. They killed one in the Bronx. They shot another one in the Bronx. They tried to get six of us uh, uh, Sunday morning. And uh, the pattern has developed across the country. The man has gone insane, absolutely out of his mind. Besides, you can't be 70 years old and surround yourself by uh, handful of 16, 17, 18-year-old girls And keep your right mind You can't do it
0: Thank you for listening And join us next week as we wrap up our four-part series On the autobiography of Malcolm X As told to Alex Taylor Thank you Click subscribe, share with your friends, give us a five-star rating. Help us grow. We got,
1: fight the that be. got so many for Say the